All right, what's going on, guys? Thanks for joining us. Uh, my name is Daniel DeBrock, and this is Stack Strength Podcast. Today, we've got Eric Helms on, and we're going to be talking about training to failure for muscle and strength. So, first off, Eric, thanks for jumping on again. Um, it's been uh, it's been a minute since you've been on the podcast. How you doing? Yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me, and it has been a while. And uh, in the interim, I've been well, and I've mostly just been pining away at the time of when I get to come back on. So today that dream comes true and I'm uh, ready to be back on you with Dan. So yeah. You're welcome. I, I figured I'd throw you a bone. So yeah. I appreciate it. I yeah. appreciate it. Good luck. Um, so can you give a little bit of an introduction for maybe people who are new listeners who aren't familiar with you? Absolutely. Yeah. So I am a research fellow at the uh, Sports Performance Research Institute New Zealand, specifically in the sports physiology and nutrition, as well as strength conditioning streams. So mostly, most of what I do uh, is what I would describe as um, physique and strength sports science. So I'm specifically interested in the stuff that I've always been interested in for the better part of my adult life. Um, you know, how do we help bodybuilders, strength athletes perform better? and have, most importantly, long-term careers so they can keep performing better. So uh, intersects a lot with ensuring that we're not seeing signs of, you know, burnout or especially in physique sport or weight class restricted weight class restricted sport, uh, issues with body image or uh, eating disorders, et cetera. Uh, also just good old plan how to get jacked and strong, which is a classic favorite of mine. Um, and I got here because sometime, geez, I think 18 years ago now, I started lifting weights got bit by the iron bug and started competing in powerlifting, uh, bodybuilding and became a personal trainer and then decided, you know what, I actually want to work with bodybuilders and strength athletes. And we started a 3d muscle journey back in late 2009, early 2010, me and a couple of actually three of my, uh, my, my fellow natty, uh, bodybuilder guys who, who wanted to try to expand the reach of, uh, of good information within our community. And it's just kind of steadily grown since, and I've kind of acted as the, the quote-unquote science arm. I'm actually technically the chief science officer, which if you're a Star Trek fan, you can appreciate uh, in, in our organization. And that's led to a lot of other cool things like me pursuing academia and moving to New Zealand, where I'm currently acting as a research fellow. And um, yes, yeah, starting up Mass with Greg Knuckles, Mike Zerdosen, Eric Trexler, and uh, writing books, and basically just kind of being a, a how to get jacked and tan well i'm not very good at being tan but at least uh jacked and and strong science communicator and that's that's me awesome man so i kind of wanted to i guess expand the conversation a little bit um regarding failure training to also include uh strength training because that's something that i generally know people don't typically use failure training i mean some do uh but for the most part it's usually like uh, that's more of a bodybuilder thing. You know, if you train a failure, it's going to affect performance, so on and so forth. Um, I don't know what your opinion is on that. I'm sort of like, eh, I think that if you do it correctly, uh, I've used it for you know the last couple months quite effectively, but I do think that there's quite a bit of caveats around that. So I'm not sure if you'd be comfortable going into that as well. Absolutely. We can, t we can totally talk about the applications of training to failure for both strength and hypertrophy. Absolutely. Cool. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I wanted to start out by first kind of differentiating a couple little things. So I know a lot of the research talks about, you know, that roughly you're going to see equivocal results if you're training three RIR or less or all the way to failure from a muscular standpoint. And so I think what a lot of people, at least from the conversations that I've heard, have kind of taken from that is, oh, they're basically the same, but this causes more fatigue. Therefore, this is better. This is worse. 
right? Or they're kind of a little bit more reductionist. And so I just kind of wanted you to expand a little bit on uh, some of the potential pros and cons of either, not even just from like an actual like physiological side, but even just practically, because I know like maybe failure training might be more beneficial for, let's say, someone who has a higher frequency if you're doing full body training or if you're just short on time or whatever it might be, right? So feel free to kind of dive into both and, and kind of explore that. Absolutely. Well, first, I just want to uh, address the, the the typical evidence-based like meme breakdown. That's exactly what you said. Like, hey, you know, seven RPE or uh, ten RPE, pretty much the same thing, or or two failure, or I could think I could do three more reps. And the it's like kind of right. So generally, when you look at the uh, published meta analyses on all the different controlled trials where we compare training to failure versus not training to failure. Um, the standardized effects are not signif significantly different between the two, <clears throat> and we don't see a, a large meaningful difference between them in the aggregate. Um, but the whole, the, the comparison of what non-failure training means as being codified as 7RPE is pretty much just made up. Like, that's basically just people in the evidence-based community saying, well, if I say six RPE or five RPE or four RPE, I'm just going to sound like a wuss. So, like, what's the lowest <laughs> proximity from failure I can say without like like catching hate in the comments? And I think that's that's collectively clustered around a seven RPE. Like, that's still a passing grade in North America. Like, you know, seventy percent out of a hundred. Um, so, I would C minus. C's gets degrees. So, I actually, <laughs> I always find that funny because it is largely mostly made up and it sort of comes from the literature there's a paper actually a really good paper so i don't want to make it sound like i'm taking a shot at it by basval and it's actually on volume and it is a systematic review that makes a really solid case which i think has been made even before it was in the research um in like blog articles and, and kind of a thinking lifting community of hey maybe we should be counting the volume of hard sets and anytime you start talking about counting the volume of hard sets as an alternative to say counting volume in any other way, traditionally sets times, reps times load, you have to de de define what is a hard set. So by definition, the authors had to go out on a limb and be like, and we think maybe that is, you know, a six RPE or higher. So it's, it's semi-similar to that in the literature. But mm -hmm. ultimately the issue here is that when you compare a failure training protocol to a non-failure training protocol, and then you decide to do a meta-analysis on all of that, you're introducing a lot of heterogeneity in the definitions of actually both those terms, believe it or not. So the easier one to discuss is why is there subjectivity in non-failure training? Well, there's a lot of different ways to prescribe it. There's a whole RPE scale below 10, right? And typically the way it's done in the research is people will do a, a prescription based on percentage of one or Not always, there's other ways to do it, but that's most common. So they might give one group, you're gonna do, you know, five reps at 75% of one RM and half as many sets as another group that is doing sets of 10 at 75% of one RM, which should be close to failure. Or they might just give us some different prescription, you know. Um, sometimes you'll even get comparisons of uh, voluntarily stopping sets at where you think you're at failure versus actually going to failing a rep. And that's the other side of it, is that there's disparities in the definition of failure. So in like the powerlifting community, we often think of failure as a 10 RPE, meaning that's the most I could have done for that load for as many reps. If you'd add to two and a half, I don't think I could have done it. If I could have, by definition, that's like a 9.5 RPE. Um, and, but it, the difference between that and like, say the Mike Menser hit 
and what is called momentary failure definition, which is also quite prominent in the literature, is you're not actually doing the repetition where you fail. You're doing the last repetition that you think is possible. So that is a 10 RPE. What you might describe as a voluntary failure, or sorry, momentary failure, is like an 11 RPE. And that's where the researchers actually require you to, okay, that, was, that rep was a really slow velocity, you barely grinded out, let's go for another one. And you miss it and you get spotted and saved, right? So there are comparisons in the literature between momentary failure and various proximities to failure of submaximal. And then there's comparisons of, um, so there's voluntary and momentary failure definitions, and those both get compared to different proximities to failure. So it's actually a much messier body of literature than most people uh, understand when they kind of hear these summaries. And I think it's important to explain that um, because some people would fall on either side of thinking that's you know a pro-failure or a con-failure thing. If you're like, oh, well, if only half the studies are actually failing on a rep, and you come from like a Mike Mentzer hit background, and you're like, oh, you're not really comparing what I think is the most effective way of training to these other things. So it's it's watering down the results. And if you're on the other side of it, where, hey, this additional fatigue that's probably not helping, it's like, oh, all these studies, people are actually going to failure. Maybe it's disproportionately making failure training look bad. So there's still so much um, debate and confusion around this. Uh, and some of it comes from different philosophies as to you know, what makes muscle grow. Some of it comes down to different definitions. And it is a relatively uh, messy uh, body of literature. Now, how that connects with your question about strength is important because technically, if you do your job right on the platform as a strength athlete, um, your third attempts should be pretty damn close to a 10 RPE, right? So by the definition of a 10 RPE being failure, powerlifters train to failure with reasonable uh, frequency and they have to do it in or they're trying to do it in competition, but it's like the price is right. You know, you don't want to go over and have Bob Barker say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, you're going home. Like you want to get as close to your max as possible uh, on, on that third uh, or, or your, your limit lift, whatever attempt that might be. So anyway, um, to some degree, I think it is important for powerlifters to train to 10 RPEs sometimes, um, simply for knowing where their limits are, being able to learn how to grind, uh, and being a little more sports specific at certain times. But I think that is a very different rationale than say, I wanna do three sets of eight to 12 at failure because I wanna make sure I stimulate as much muscle per pos as possible per set, uh, which could make sense if you're in a, like say, farther from competition volume hypertrophy block as a power lifter. But the typical rationale for doing that is much more present in the bodybuilding or hypertrophy community. Yeah, so even, <clears throat> Even just in the last like two second example that you gave, there, there's like potentially three or four different contexts where you might use failure training and how it can have not necessarily failure, but like something with a closer proximity to failure and have very, very different results, uh, mm -hmm. both on like fatigue and then the actual adaptation you're looking for. Because like I really, for some of my clients, I think I have two right now who just respond super well to doing a top single at an eight almost every single session or yeah, basically every single session and they don't get more fatigued. They get like crazy strong. We're able to prolong the, the duration between deloads and things like that. So just on every metric, basically they're improving. If you were to get me to do that, I do that for two weeks and then I get injured, you know? And so it's like one, who are you coaching? How do they respond? 
Two, was there even an acclimation period to going to training? Three, where are they in their competition cycle? Like you were saying, even noting the difference between like taking a, you know, a low bar squat to, to failure, you know, even for like a single, like an RP10 versus taking it to 10 or 12 reps, you know, and, and their conditioning for, for either. And, you know, so there's like so much differences when you're talking about failure. And I think a lot of the times, um, at least in some of the conversations that I've seen on like social media and stuff like that, it's a little bit too reductionist kind of on both sides. And then the one thing that you said that I really liked as well was, um, gauging RPE and being able to know where your actual limits are. This is something I chatted with, uh, gosh, was it Bryce Lewis, maybe like a year or two ago when, uh, when he was talking about like using the garbage bags and he's like, sometimes you just kind of need to reset that, that limit in your head. And I always thought that was really interesting. And I think that's really applicable to looking at RPE and RIR because like, I've had a lot of, I know that the kind of general idea is like the, the more advanced you are, you are going to be better at, at, you know, hitting RPEs and stuff like that. And that's clearly true. But then at the same time, I also think that people can just sort of slowly get a little lazy. You know, I, I think it probably happens a little bit more in like secondary movements and accessories than some of the other ones. But like, I remember I'll, I'll have like every now and then if I'm traveling around for, for work or whatever, I'll end up randomly being in a place where I'm with a client. So we'll get some training in and then I'll see them doing their accessories. And I'm like, oh, now you need to push that harder. And then they're like, okay. And so they go up and they're like, oh my God, that was, that was terrible. And I'm like, no, you need to go up like another 30, 40 pounds still, you know? And then you see them really pushing and they're like, oh my God, like I had no idea that I could do that. And that, that like shift in, in where they think they're performing versus what their actual output is every now and then I do find it beneficial for, for that reason versus any of like the potential rationales mechanistically or whatever, where it's like, oh, you might get 0 0.75. Mm -hmm better hypertrophy or whatever. It's like, I just think that like to learn how to push hard is super, super important. And yeah. like, I don't care how hard someone works, at least it's just been my experience. Maybe you kind of have a, you know, your own take on this, but I think that we all just kind of get complacent if, if you've been training for a long period of time, you know? Yeah. I think, like, I think it, it depends on training with other people. No, I, I do agree. And I think it depends on like personality, training environment yeah. and training philosophy. One interesting thing that I've observed is that, while I'm not a huge fan of what goes into uh, everything related to what we think of when we think of like, quote unquote, West Side training, which was yeah. the, the dominant training style, you know, I would say a decade ago and then for the decade prior to that as well, as it's died away, there's have been some funny observations I've seen. So I have seen numerous times uh, high level powerlifters who are deadlifting 600, 800 pounds and they'll start doing good mornings or RDLs as part of their programming. And they're in this kind of new age, quote unquote, uh, you know, style of training. And, you know, they're doing RDLs with like 315, 365, something like that. And I'm like, bro, I do that. And my deadlift is 200 pounds less than yours. Yeah. And you didn't see that in the West Side era because the main lift rotated so often. And the emphasis on those ME days was to really push it. Right. So you would hear these ridiculous stories of people doing, you know, seated good mornings with 800 pounds. And it, it made sense compared to what could they squat and what could they deadlift. Mm -hmm. And now as I think we've gotten a little further away from that and accessory movements are in this other class of perspective, like you were saying, like, I don't need to push those up. Those are generally there to, you know, aid my hypertrophy and be accessory, build work capacity, be non-specific so I can recover, but maintain some strength, you know, whatever rationale someone's using or combination thereof you will see this slide where there's this disproportionate strength level between the two, you know, and 
that was maybe one benefit to having a more frequently rotated main lift, more things that you were trying to push PRs on, and more things that could be qualified as a squat or deadlift or bench press, you know, when you had all these variations. Like, like I said, I, I think it also came with a lot of other baggage that I'm not a huge fan of from that training system. <laughs> but yeah. I will say, if you are a 700-pound deadlifter and you're doing RDLs with 315 in, this, in like the 8 to 12 rep range, that might not be doing anything for you, you know, that, yeah. that is uh, inefficient cardio. So that, that is absolutely something I've had to mention to some of my athletes, ask them to send me videos and kind of get them out of that habit and be like, you know, look, like you can probably be doing this with 500 pounds as easily yeah. as I can with 300. Um, and that's a funny thing when you see some of the quote unquote more standard main movements in bodybuilders who are weaker than powerlifters, but are moving heavier weights. And it's because of that, because bodybuilders, similarly to the West Side mentality, all of their movements are supposed to be uh, doing something. They're not, there's no, no such thing as an accessory movement for a bodybuilder, yeah. you know, because you get judged on all of your muscularity and it, it's proportionate development. Um, so yeah, I 100% agree with you. It's very context dependent. And you know, if, if you don't have a training environment or a system that emphasizes training close to failure, uh, or if you have the opportunity for human nature to come into a system where, oh, this is an accessory, this is a secondary movement, or this is further from competition, uh, I think it is to some degree normal uh, for there to be a, a backsliding in an effort, if you will, or proximity to failure is probably more accurate. So yeah, I think that happens. And I think wherever you land on the what's an appropriate proximity to failure to train at most of the time, whether you're someone who is, you know, actually, I think it should be at five RP most of the time, we should do more volume, or you're someone who's like, nah, it's too important, I want to do lower volume, and therefore train closer to failure or somewhere in between. All of those are predicated on an accurate gauge of how close you are to failure, regardless of whether you're going to failure or stopping short of it. And therefore, I think it's beneficial for all lifters to recalibrate do audits, whatever you want to call it, and have phases where you do actually train pretty close to failure and actually test that. Um, so, you know, you, you do a set of five, you stop at an eight RPE, make take five minutes of rest, next set, you go until you hit a 10. And if you get more than two reps or less than two reps, you know you're a little off, right, uh, on, on that next set. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I actually did want to touch on a little bit um, was the, the change in volume if you're pushing something to failure versus if, if you're not right. So like generally if you're going to, you know, stay a little further away from, from failure, you're going to have to maybe do a little bit more volume to make up for that. Now, one thing that I noticed, cause I, I was someone who was like pretty, I'm not going to say anti-failure training, but I had significant reservations until I actually got a coach for the first time who was way smarter than me. And I was like, this is what we're going to do. And I was like, okay, like I just automatically, I was just bought in because of, you know who he was and um and i tried it and i noticed that like the amount of volume that we were doing was substantially less but i felt better and i actually was seeing like better results from hypertrophy and stuff like that and so one of the things that i was wondering was like if you're doing reduced volume but your output's higher you know per per you know set or, or something like that if, if we're just measuring volume based on the number of sets you're doing would that potentially be a rationale for like, you know, maybe less quote unquote wear and tear on the body? Cause I don't know, I felt a little bit better, but I also don't know if that's just my experience and I'm just sort of like reverse engineering a rationale. 
you know i think i think that's very astute of you to to leave the door open up for that possibility um in my experience there are people who and it's of course modifiable like if you train for endurance you're going to get better endurance if you train for shot put you're going to get better for shot put so this is not to say that these are hard-coded you know limits in our physiology that once we've identified you as someone who leans more this way never will you ever be able to modify that to any degree but i will say that people have a i'll say a propensity which is probably a better descriptor toward being more fatigued by heavy loads and fatigue isn't always the right word there i'm using that generally injury prone could be an example uh, of what that could mean or volume so some people seem to break down when you throw a lot of throughput in the system some people seem to break down with load thresholds um, and the subjective experience of what's harder is going to differ between people and i think that actually is going to dictate where you you trend towards you know because one thing that is shared amongst everyone in the lifting community especially the competitive lifting community is that training that is hard is going to produce results so when you get camps that trend towards let me do all the volume in the world or let me train all the way to failure and past it whether you're like you can watch videos of arnold training back in the day or dorian training a little less back in the day both of them are training hard but they have different approaches to doing so and it's probably because they perceive different levels of difficulty between the two and then they associate that hard work with their success and then people who have a similar experience filter towards thinking that as a philosophy that is the, the quote-unquote right one and it may be that it is right or more right for you but not others so that's something I've experienced as a coach. I don't have any data that really solidly backs that up for me to make it sound sciencey. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do think that some people are going to have maybe a higher response to high effort sets and then maybe a lower work capacity. Or let's say, like some people, if, if I wanted to sound a little bit sciencey, I could say like, hey, it's because they're more fast twitch dominant, you know? Yeah. And, and, and we see people who have a greater propensity of fast twitch fibers, those those fibers are more fatigable. So if you do more volume, yeah, it works, it's great. These people are gonna, gonna generally respond more because these fibers are generally larger, um, but it comes at a fatigue cost. Therefore, they're high responders in both fatigue and stimulus, so you wanna moderate volume or something yeah. like that. But that could be bullshit. There's a lot of other factors at play, but nonetheless, it's an observation that I'm reasonably confident in because of the regularity that I've seen it and how the socio-cultural aspects of, of bodybuilding and powerlifting tend to shake out, that I think some people get beat up more by volume, some people get beat up more by proximity to failure uh, and or load, which kind of becomes the same thing, at least in powerlifting. So yeah, it's an interesting thing. And um, it's also challenging to really directly apply the literature in this space. Like if I wanted to really kind of steel man the, 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 the failure proponents, and, and say, look, if, 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 I, if you put a gun to my head and you said, well, hey, the literature is messy for all the reasons you, you talked about earlier in this, Eric, but which way do you think it leans? I would say, look, it leans actually towards failure producing slightly better outcomes. Like when we look at the most recent meta-analyses published on this topic, there's one by Gurdjieff and one by, uh, I think, Vieira. Like I said, it's not significant, but the effect sizes have wide confidence intervals, which just means there's a lot of noise in the data but the mean standardized difference is typically either small it's like it's small favoring failure now if i want to steel man the other side of it uh, you know the people who who advise higher volume and then moderating intensity to accomplish that volume 
there's a huge flaw with these meta-analyses. 95, 90, 95% of the studies, they're training two or three days a week. And 90 to 95% of strength athletes I know train four, and bodybuilders especially, train four, five, or six days per week. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at a, like a study of studies of people doing what everyone would agree is a low volume and frequency, roughly 50% of what everyone else is doing, and saying, hey, look, going to failure is better. And I don't think that's surprising. And I don't think it's, it's, it's a very supportive argument for saying, hey, all you folks who train you know, four to six days per week, do less volume and go to failure because they're already doing twice the volume of what this, the study participants are doing in these, uh, in these meta-analyses and, and randomized controlled trials. So only thing we can confidently say is that you might get slightly better results if you're only training two to three, day, three days per week on a low to moderate volume program with pushing to failure. And then, you know, the, the volume proponents would just be like, well, yeah, if you're doing suboptimal volume, then you need to make that volume as effective as possible. And I think ultimately, when you keep hearing these, these alternative arguments, you come to realize that there is probably some moderation here that needs to happen to get the best of both worlds. If you are doing a whole bunch of volume at a very low intensity and you go down that slippery slope, it's, it's quote unquote junk volume. Likewise, if you really, really limit your volume so that you can train to and past failure, now you're actually creating disproportionate fatigue for a smaller total signal of stimulus. So you, you almost by definition understand that even in those archetypes of people who might respond better to volume or intensity, they should probably come away from the two extremes. And it should be something like low moderate volume with close to failure and occasionally to failure, or it should be moderate to high volume with sometimes getting close to failure with most of your work being semi-submaximal. And then, of course, going through periods where you might emphasize one or the other in a periodized fashion, and especially to recalibrate or audit your capability to get to failure. And I think that's the only reasonable interpretation of the data right now. I think anyone who looks at the data and is a staunch proponent of staying short of failure or going to failure is probably extrapolating beyond the the data. Um, But there are some caveats. So I will say that training to failure with moderate to high repetitions on free weight lower body compound movements is a very different animal to doing it on lateral raises or a machine chest press or things like that. Um, One thing that does not get included in studies and analyzed are the people who drop out. And I've been a part of some research studies, not in person, but uh, via distance that we've done at FAU where we tried to have squat and bench going to 10 RPEs or actually to failure. And we had like 50% of the people drop out, you know, training three days a week, squatting to failure with moderate reps. So I think when you see studies where people are squatting multiple times per week, going to failure, it's almost always volitional. It's probably not like true failure. And that should tell you something as to the feasibility of that in the real world. Yeah, that sucks. I know, (laughs) I know juggernaut sometimes like their app or whatever, they have people doing like a last a last squat set as an AMRAP or something like that. I've seen that before, but I had to do an AMRAP one time and it was horrendous. But actually, kind of to your point, I got substantially, I was, I was aiming for like 10, maybe 11. I got like 17 reps mm. and I was like, oh my God. And like, you know, I think the only th- reason why I got that was um, uh, this guy, Bryce, oh, you probably know him actually, Bryce Krawchuk. Oh yeah. 
Yeah, so he was, he was he was yeah. <laughs> he was spotting me, and I was just like, "Oh man, don't be a bitch." So I think I just crushed it a couple extra reps, but then like it was it was at the point where like now if I'm hitting an actual top set, once I'm done, I can't walk it back in on my own. I'm like, nope, my legs are just like that's done. Like if I even try and go down, I'm just done. So they had to like grab the bar and like walk me in, and I'm like kind of shaking as I'm trying to slowly step in. It was brutal. But oh my god, man! Yeah, then after that, I couldn't train for like nine days. Like, <laughs> like I, I mean, I was I was still doing my training, but yeah, it was my like my intensities just dropped way way off, and I was like, ah, I don't think I'm really cut out for this stuff. <laughs> Maybe I'll just stick yeah. with what I'm doing. And, and Dan, that is something we do know. Like, uh, Vieira has another meta analysis that looks at the acute responses to failure. And even when volume matched, and I think this is something that wouldn't surprise most lifters if they've you know been around for a while, you do see greater acute markers uh, for fatigue and greater indirect markers of muscle damage, even when you're doing the same amount of volume. So um, objectively, a three by 10, uh, 10 at a 10 RPE compared to a five by six at a four RPE um, is going, sorry, six RPE, those that's the same amount of volume, same loads, just stopping four reps for failure and making it up with additional sets. You're going to have less damage. You're going to have less metabolic fatigue acutely. You'll probably be able to train more frequently, which is kind of the general argument you hear on the more volume side of the proponents, mm -hmm. is that essentially volume is important and so is proximity to failure. But you want to find the balance where the latter doesn't actually take away from the former. So if you can't train effectively for nine days, that might be too much intensity or too much volume. You know, you, you, you could look at it both ways. So you have to figure out, and really it just comes down to don't work so hard that you're making yourself work less hard at the next step up in the uh, depth of that magnifying glass on, on training time. So if you make a single session the hardest way it can possibly be, then that can impact, you know, the rest of the week. Likewise, if you make the first exercise in a workout, I mean, this is pretty intuitive if you do a leg day. If you have squat, RDL, leg press, leg extension, leg curl, and calf raises, and you go to the house on, on squats with high rep sets to failure and multiple sets, then, you know, like, how good is leg press going to be, you know? Like, what, what can we really expect? And how trashed is your back going to be the next day after also doing that and RDLs with a similar level of intensity? So there, there needs to be some degree of pacing, um, essentially, and that is probably going to result in better net performance. And that's actually something we see in um, like exercise physiology more broadly, that when you give someone an open-ended, just go to failure, I'll tell you when to stop, performance is typically worse. But when people know they have a performance objective, they're able to pace themselves a little better. Um, and I don't think it perfectly applies like, you know, from time trial to how many sets at what proximity to failure we should do. But generally, if you know what you need to get done, um, you're going to modulate that sufficiently so that you get there. And if you just have way too much to accomplish, then you end up going through the whole session in third gear and maybe losing a little something. And if you have very little to accomplish, you're probably going to push it close to failure. And that may or may not be good or bad, depending on the, on the context. So it really does depend on a lot of factors. And I think it is ultimately also important to mention that these won't make these don't make big differences at the group level like i said when we look at the meta-analysis small differences right but i do think they could make relatively large differences for certain individuals and i have seen some people 
move from a low moderate volume failure approach to a moderate to high volume submaximal approach and start making gains. And I've seen vice versa. So yeah, I think when you get a whole bunch of volunteers into a study, that kicks out as basically, eh, didn't see much. But um, for, for, for you, whoever that dear listener may be, you could find yourself leaning on either side of the spectrum and, and getting noticeably better gains. I think that's certainly a possibility. Mm-hmm. And so <clears throat> I guess with respect more to just bodybuilding and trying to uh, increase your level of muscularity, how might you structure your training to sort of maximize you know, the, the benefits of the higher output while minimizing some of the associated fatigue costs that, that might lead into the next session or even just affect maybe the rest of the, the training session, like you were saying? Yeah, I like to start uh, like kind of working backwards with constraints to think of what, what am I trying to achieve? So generally, um, where I think of is, is what is the volume per muscle group that I'm trying to accomplish? And knowing that the more volume I do, and therefore, if I lower the proximity to failure, or I should say, if I lower the intensity, just to make that clear, um, then it's going to be a little bit less effective. But generally, so long as I'm training reasonably close to failure, that's going to be a big part of the signal, you know, based upon how we understand things are operating. So if I know I need to get, let's say, 15 sets done on this given muscle group, what's a reasonable number that I can do in a single session before it starts to impact the quality noticeably in terms of uh, me having to dump load off the bar or it having a negative impact on other exercises, right? So, okay, let's say that is five to eight sets. So you know automatically that you need to have at least two, maybe three training sessions that include that muscle group. So that's how you start to then construct your your microcycle, right? So you kind of do that for all the different muscle groups and then a split will emerge. I'm not a huge fan of starting with a split and then fitting volume into it and fitting exercises into it. Like, hey, I'm gonna do an upper lower or hey, I wanna do a body part split or I'm gonna do a push pull legs, you know, full or something like that. I think that should be an emergent property of the amount of training sessions that you can accomplish logistically and the amount of volume you're trying to achieve. And then you fitting in things like, okay, where do I not want to have overlap? Okay, if I do RDLs I, and I also need to do leg curls, but I'm not going to do them in the same session. And those need to be at least two training sessions later. You know, that might be what you've determined from your own training experience and the amount of work you got to do. And that will dictate when your next hamstring session, training session comes in. So when I program, like you, like if you looked at my my training log right now, I have like a an upper plus calves day, and then I have like a lower plus biceps day kind of thing. Um, and I have previously described this as, hey, I train full body, but people get a very twisted sense of what I mean when I say that. I basically am removing the constraints of of what I'm allowed to train on a given day, mm-hmm. um, rather than saying I make sure I train every single muscle group. You know, um, yeah. so I have some days where like you wouldn't call upper plus calves, uh, you know, full body, but I have probably confused people by calling it that before. So anyway, um, so working back from what am I trying to accomplish? How many days do I have? How do I divide it thinking about overlap? And then from there, um, you start to work with, okay, like what other things can I do in that session? How many exercises can I do if I'm doing this many sets at this proximity to failure? And basically I see it as anything's game in like the five to 10 RPE range. But if you're going to trend towards trying to push volume above what you've historically done to try to see if you respond well to it, let's say you're going to go 20% above your, your, your quote unquote normal volume, 
then you might want to step down like one RPE on average for what you're training at. Likewise, if you were trying to do something like say 80% of the volume you're used to, you probably want to step up one. And you have to also be aware of like, what is your time course of recovery? So for me, I noticed that when I trained to failure, it seems to uh, like increase the time course of recovery by about a day when I compared to me training at like an average of seven to eight RPE um, with similar number of sets. So that means that can change the calculus on that frequency and, 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 and the way I, I, I organize my days of training. And that also kind of lines up with the research when we look at uh, comparing matched volume exercises, like it adds a day or two. To, to the, to does, the that, does that matter what muscle group that is for you? Just because, like, purely for myself, like, yes. the only time I'll, I'll do like failure training, or whatever, is on like my kind of accessories at the end. Mm. But I think most powerlifters used to training their back, like, if not every day, pretty much every day. So, like, I'll do lat pull downs or heavy rows or chest support rows or something like that. And it is to failure pretty much every single time. Um, and I do that pretty much every day, but I'm always fine because like I do that all the time. So I was just wondering if there was a, something like that you noticed. There is. And you know, the interesting thing is there's some research I want to say by Carmaggio and then another study, I can't remember the author, but in both cases, what they do is they look at the amount of fatigue or muscle damage incurred from a compound exercise or an isolation exercise for the same muscle group. And interestingly enough, these two studies found the opposite. I think the one on squats versus leg extensions found that squats were more fatiguing and everyone in the lifting community went, of course, we all knew that, no big deal, right? The next one came out and it compared rows to bicep curls and it found that bicep curls produced more like bicep fatigue. And again, it's, it's a muscle specific measure, right? We're looking at uh, the, the, the local indirect muscle, uh, indirect uh, markers for muscle damage. But when you think about it, if you, if you just put things in boxes of like, compound exercises or isolation that can sometimes be a proxy for fatigue because the compound exercise trains more muscle groups. And I'm confident in saying that if you match the RPE and number of sets and rep targets on compounds versus isolation exercises, there'll be more metabolic fatigue, but I'm not confident in all cases it's going to produce more muscle damage. So if we think about it, if I'm doing a preacher curl, which is what they compared in the study versus, or if I'm doing a bicep curl versus a row, first off, in a row, I'm starting in shoulder flexion. So I've already shortened the bicep a little bit, which is a weak shoulder flexor. I've also limited the range of motion to the point where my elbow is coming to 90 degrees. However, in a bicep curl, I am actually not in shoulder flexion. I'm in a neutral shoulder position. So the bicep starts in a greater stretch position and I'm using a greater range of motion. And the limiting factor on a bicep curl is unsurprisingly your biceps. However, on a row, it could be something else besides your biceps. So not only is there a greater range of motion and a greater stretch position on the biceps, but it, it may or may not be depending on the individual strengths of the person performing it. The thing that is the weak link in the chain per se, but all those things are not true on a bicep curl. So we would expect when you think about it for the local muscle damage, but not necessarily the metabolic cost of exercise for the bicep curl to produce more muscle damage and have more local, uh, a longer time course of local recovery, if you will. But on a squat versus a leg extension, you would think, well, why isn't that the same? Well, in a squat, at least to powerlifting depth or lower, if you compare the bottom position to the bottom position of most commercial leg curls, the commercial leg curl is like almost a parallel squat, you know, and you can't even adjust it further back than that, you know. Um, so it's not putting the quad on as much stretch. 
for one. And on top of that, it's it's only training, you know, one one muscle group while the squat is training like most of the full body. So you have a greater stretch and metabolic fatigue for a squat, but you only have uh, that like half of that when you're comparing a bicep to bicep curl to a row. And so again, when we, we talk about training to failure on back work, it doesn't make you nearly as sore as training to failure on something like an RDL or or most other movements. Yeah. And that's because to what we define as failure in powerlifting, which has well-defined range of motion requirements, like, you know, you hit depth on squat, you touch your chest on bench, it has to start on the floor for a deadlift, right? So we, we often take that same philosophy. So when I can no longer get the bar to my chest on a chest supported row, or I can't lift the weight to the same height, I have no longer completed a rep, that's a 10 RPE. But you could probably do 90% of a rep and 80% of a rep and 70% of a rep and get like another six reps in most cases. And that's because the the curve, the strength curve on a row is getting shittier and shittier for you, right? So trying to, everyone knows this, as you try to get the bar as close to your chest as possible, that last three inches is, is disproportionately harder than other aspects of that range of motion. So the point at which you have reached failure in a row is not nearly the same point on, on a more balanced strength curve of total fatigue of the muscle. So like, you know, training to a 10 RPE on, on, on a row is not the same thing as training to a 10 RPE on an RDL, which is another modifying factor. Like there's a lot of inter, inter, interdependent variables here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, even like the differences in cardiovascular ability, like for, for me anyways, I, mean, I guess it would depend on your, your previous training history. So like, I, I would imagine that would affect bodybuilders quite a bit less, but like a power lifter getting them to do a squat to failure, if they're hitting like 10 reps is probably going to like, I don't know that they'd be hitting muscular failure before they'd be hitting cardiovascular like limitations that are really stopping them from actually pushing and so oh, yeah. that's definitely like a, a big consideration there too but i, I mean i guess <clears throat> a little bit more specifically for um for for just bodybuilders then um because you 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 did mention like kind of shortening up the range of motion and doing things like that to sort of eke out a little bit more uh, a little bit more output once you have reached or kind of exceeded that sort of you know quote unquote technical failure point where you're not able to reach your chest on the on the row or the pull down or whatever it might be um how how often do you see things like that being beneficial for let's say people who um either have sort of like a, a weak muscle group or something like that or, or leg lagging muscle group yeah i think it is absolutely worth giving a shot and you know because especially if you're someone who has tried the traditional approach to a lagging muscle group, I'm, I'm going to do more like, Hey, I've got weak lats. I'm going to do pull-ups every day. If that didn't fix the problem, it might be worth trying something like training at long muscle lengths or doing long muscle length partials. Um, because if piling on more didn't work, that is some evidence. It's not perfect evidence that it might be a quality issue, not a quantity issue. Right? So if the the uh, the musculature involved in the exercises that you're doubling up volume on are that you're trying to grow are not the weak links. That's a really like it'd be like saying you know what I have weak grip, so I'm going to deadlift ten by ten every day. It's like well, <laughs> other other problems are going to crop up, you know, before before your 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 grip gets effectively trained there, you know. Mm -hmm. So why not try something like, hey, we're going to do heavier work and just do the first two thirds of the range of motion and call that your quote unquote row. 
or your pull down or what have you. So you're doing a lot more training in the lengthened position and see if you start to notice that you're getting, you know, more doms in your lats and that they're actually the, the, the thing that's fatiguing. Um, this is something that um, I have heard a few power lifters notice anecdotally that when you have lifters with really huge arches, yeah, you can do a lot of technical work and that can really help them. But when they're further from competition to really help them actually improve, you have to do some more flat back work and greater range of motion stuff. Yeah. And you're like, you, it's just very challenging to get a whole lot of growth out of a muscle when you're training it at such a limited range of motion. That's why isometrics don't typically produce the same amount of hypertrophy as uh, full range of motion exercises do. And this is one of those rare cases where the traditional wisdom of both the anecdotal uh, you know, lifters and the research of, hey, full range of motion seems to be better, has a caveat. And that is really that full range of motion, the the thing that seems to be producing the, the, the majority of the benefit is that full range of motion is more likely to train a muscle in an elongated position. And when you produce high levels of force in an elongated position, it seems to produce disproportionately more hypertrophy. And the way that this has been tested now is that there have been multiple studies now where you compare partial ranges of motion in the lengthened position versus partial ranges of motion in the shortened position. And you see a lot more growth in the studies where they do that in the lengthened position. Think about you know, the, the classic like douchebag uh, frat boy bicep curl exercise 21s, right? Where you do the, uh, the bottom seven and then you do the, like the top seven and then you do the, the whole range of motion. If you're just, if you only did the top seven versus the bottom seven, that's what that study is comparing and saying doing the top seven on, on a, uh, on, on curls seems to produce a lot less bicep growth than just doing the bottom seven. And, uh, so, so anyway, long ranges of, sorry, larger ranges of motion are not better because it's a larger range predominantly. It seems to be because they're including that lengthened position which seems to have additional mechanical stimulus to the, to the, to the muscle. The actual sarcomere is being stretched a little more and that prov provided uh, an additional tension stimulus. And in support of this, there's actually a recent study that was published where they gave the participants an orthotic device which stretched their calves and they wore it for an hour a day and they adjusted it so that it kept them stretched because we have seen animal model studies where they do weighted stretching, like they actually just take a bird and like hang a weight off its wing and it produces massive hypertrophy. But ethically, we haven't been able to do anything even close to that. Like you can't be like, you know what, we're just going to take these people and stretch them eight hours a day with weights and lock them in position. But the closest thing to that now has been done daily, one hour calf stretching with an orthotic device that you manually adjust and you just sit there. And they had a within subject design. So like one calf and was doing it and the other one wasn't. And they saw like, some pretty some pretty impressive increases in calf growth and muscle thickness in, in the group that was just doing stretching that's without any training so we've got that but we've, we've got that mechanistically established now like oh like a, a stretch position with a long enough duration and intensity and with enough frequency does produce some pretty substantial hypertrophy and we've got these partial range of motion studies comparing the shortened versus lengthened position we take that together and it makes me think that that is probably far and away the, the main mechanism of full range of motion training being better rather than just something else. Like, you know, you do more total work. Mm -hmm. So I, I wanted to kind of follow up with your, your uh, comments earlier about, you know, your quote unquote full body training. Cause mm -hmm. um, as we were talking off, uh, off camera, 
I'm having to temporarily abandon some some strength training uh, goals just for for health things. So I'm pursuing something that doesn't necessarily require as high output from like a performance standpoint. So I actually am also doing like kind of a full body um, training split as well, where I kind of do something similar. So like I'll do shoulders on, on like my, my leg days or whatever. And then some, some other things, sometimes I'll do like a split squat on my upper body days or whatever, just, you know, mm-hmm. um, but uh, in, in terms of your training uh, paradigm that you set up, how, how did you go about kind of arranging that? Like, I know you talked a little bit about you kind of have your sort of volume targets and all that stuff, but in terms of, let's say, how you distribute the volume through the week, like what, what's your sort of rationale behind that? Are you trying to sort of like, um, j- just for maybe some of the other people who, who are listening and Absolutely. myself just to get some free coaching right now. So <laughs> no, no. no, the, uh, I think this is especially important for people who tend to have uh, lacking lower body development. It's that, I think, you know, like the, the common adage you hear among bodybuilders is like, oh, let's see who can do a harder leg day. Like, oh, see if you can roll with me on leg day. Because leg day is the day that, that, that breaks men and, and fills toilets with, with the lunch you were hoping to keep down, right? And um, they're notorious for being the sessions that are by far and away the hardest thing of the week, you know? And that is cool for bragging to your bros and sisses, but it possibly is actually inhibiting your ability to put put effective work so the traditional approach of a lower body part frequency in bodybuilding combined with how challenging you know leg days are can be a limiting factor for some people so like i talked about like if you've got one leg day a week you're jamming a lot into the same session i remember when i first started training i would always do a squat or an rdl or or a deadlift and then after that, I would choose whether I wanted to do leg extensions, sorry, a leg press or lunges. And then I would do leg extension, leg curls and calf raises, right? That is just like, there's no way to make a, an, an appropriate amount of volume, even for someone who has to do a relatively low volume to grow in one session per week to cover the entire lower body. Especially when you consider that most of the lower body exercises we have are somewhat full body because you have to support a bar on your back or keep your back rigid while you're holding it in your hands. So cramming that on a single session, I think is a recipe for a steep precipitous drop in the quality of work as you go through, through the session uh, or, or a drop in load. And then you're, and, and basically central factors creating fatigue rather than local muscular factors and, and essentially in, in inhibiting the amount of tension you could produce the local mus- musculature. But it still feels very hard. You know, you can still make yourself throw up even if you're lifting 60% of one RM just because of the cumulative fatigue on your other exercises. So what I like to do is I really like to think about, okay, if we can keep your average like session RPE, if we think about, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how hard was that whole session? If we don't want to go above a seven or eight on most days, unless we're, you know, at the end of a, a mesocycle and we're pushing over reaching block and we know a deload is coming, then how do we need to modify our lower body day? So if you look at that traditional lower body day and we go, well, I, I got to pull out the lunges. Like I can do squats and RDLs and then leg extension, leg curl. And that's going to put me at a pretty high RPE for the whole session, but I got to remove those, those, those lunges. And then you can slot them somewhere else. So the idea is basically how do I preserve performance? And that's kind of the, uh, the the philosophy underlying this. So then, okay, if I, if I put lunges somewhere else, what does that do to the rest of the split? And I would say 
it's becoming more and more common for people not to just train once a week. So I've got these two lower body days. They're both pretty brutal. I pull out one exercise of each and all of a sudden now I'm training legs on four days a week, you know, a little bit. And, and that is kind of what happens. And then the main thing is you need to consider are, okay, what other factors can impede my, uh, my performance? So if you're going to do like one of those exercises that you pull out and you have to end up having two sessions in a row where you train legs, you probably don't want it to be something that trains you to long muscle length because that might produce soreness even if you did low volume, you know? So like, here's a great example. Uh, RDLs, they're the, 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 the culprit we all understand because in the, down, in the bottom position, your hamstrings are the most stretched and the fulcrum is the longest. You know, your, 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 your back is at a 90 degree angle of the floor. It's parallel to the floor. The bar's in your hands. So the bar is the furthest point away from your hamstring that it gets. So that means the load is the highest when your hamstrings are the most stretched. And that's why even, like, let's say you haven't done RDLs in a month. And you decide, hey, I'm going to throw them into this muscle cycle. I'll just start with two sets at a seven RPE. And then for two, two days, you're sore. And you're like, what the hell? Like, I did two sets at a seven RPE. That's something most people have experienced. And that is just, regardless of the fact that it was low volume, low intensity. So that means you have to be strategic when you start to split up your days like this. And think about which exercises really seem to make me locally sore and beat me up. And those are the ones I want to pull out and maybe I can put so that I, if I had back-to-back sessions. Like it's not going to be a big deal if you were to do leg extensions, three sets, and then have to squat two days later. But if you have to do, but if you RDLs and then you have to do deadlift two days later, that's going to be an issue for, for a lot of lifters. So that's kind of the calculus. And it ends up, um, the way I program is I kind of get like a first draft of how I break everything up. And then I kind of go through muscle group by muscle group and I go, oh, no, that won't work. Like that's going to create problems or, okay, maybe I need to have a rest day there. Like I've got these two floating rest days if I train five days a week, where are those best to go? And sometimes, you know, your work schedule dictates that and you don't get to have the kind of flexibility you'd like. But um, ultimately it becomes this kind of revising process until you, you think, you know what? Performance should be good. There's nothing bleeding over from session one to session two, to session three and session four, et cetera. Session five and the one the next week. Okay, I've got Sunday off. You know, that, that's basically the calculus. Mm-hmm. And then where you have those inevitable overlaps, then you need to think about, okay, well, maybe I should limit either volume or I should limit the RPE on that session where there will be overlap so I can perform here. And then you start to prioritize. Like, you know, I, I want to have more, more up and go for my squats than my leg extensions. I'll do my leg extensions, but I'm going to drop one set or something like that. Mm-hmm. So it is kind of this uh, emergent program that comes from how you're distributing things. So yeah, I think, uh, that is a somewhat intimidating process if you haven't had a lot of experience programming and it's not, it's like, there's nothing wrong with sticking with some of the more tried and true moderate splits, like a legs, push, pull, upper, lower, or just the upper, lower, upper, lower. Like those are often, or even, even just a body part split where it's, you know, a full seven days before you train the same muscle group again. I think if you don't have uh, the need to do high volume, a body part split is totally fine because it's kind of idiot proof, you know, like I got seven days. So there's not a whole lot I could do to really, really mess things up unless I just go crazy. Mm-hmm. So yeah, if you're intimidated by the prospect of having this kind of emergent constraints led based programming strategy that, that, you know, Dan and I are talking about, then my advice would be, you know, if you need lower moderate volume, 
try a body part split or an upper lower or a legs push pull upper or a legs push pull upper lower type approach. And it's, it's very difficult to get that wrong unless you're really making any single day super hard. And I think a general rule of thumb is like the, the, the session RPE should be like progressing from moderate to moderate to high to high only if you have a deload afterwards as you go week to week to week. Mm. I want to just kind of add on, I guess, that I'll, I'll say is like, because um, I program for myself and especially when I first started programming for myself, I noticed that I would drastically overestimate my ability. <laughs> and so one thing that, that I found to be pretty helpful, uh, at least for the first while programming, or especially if you're trying something new, like if you are going to switch. So for me, even I'm going to be doing this because I've never really done, you know, bodybuilding training before. So um, is just write your first week, do exactly what Eric was saying, because I, I think those were all like fantastic kind of criteria to sort of go and check off all those boxes and then just do it and then see like how close was I and you could always pull a set add a set reduce the intensity because like there have been times where I'm like oh yeah this will be fine but then I get to the third exercise and I'm like oh man like I'm just done like I'm just so done because the output on the first two was just super high so now I know I need to have like maybe one or two more accessories after the first two but they need to be you know upper body i can't push anything more lower body or whatever right so i'll do some rows and maybe some some ab wheel or something like that and then that'll just be it for that day and and you can always do that and just kind of take notes that first week and i found that to be really really effective and then eventually you just sort of will know intuitively and then if you're a coach i mean you kind of already have that with with like the experience that you have with, with your athletes you're working with but um yeah you know, one, one final thing I would add that I think would be helpful, and that, that's all that's really, really good advice, is there are appropriate pairings for hypertrophy uh, with different exercises and of, of reps and proximity to failure. The beauty of hypertrophy is it's a very forgiving adaptation. Um, that's why you can find people training like Dorian, you can find people training like Arnold, and they're both yacked. Um, but like from a mechanistic perspective, if you're hitting sets of five or six, that are reasonably close to failure, or you're hitting sets of 15 to 20 that are reasonably close to failure, on a set-by-set basis, the average person will get similar outcomes. Your mileage may vary, of course, as an individual. But at least if you don't seem to have an inclination towards one or the other in terms of how you respond, you can use that to your advantage, that flexibility. So, you know, when you're doing sets of squats, even doing a set of 15, to a six or seven RPE will wind most people just because of the overall metabolic output unless they're in pretty good shape. So that's not a great target if that's one of your first exercises in the whole session. So what I generally recommend is that you stay in moderate rep ranges and moderate RPEs for compound free weight lower body exercises. And then you can push that a little further in the reps or the RPE as you move away from free weight compound lower body exercises to you know free weight compound upper body exercises or compound machine-based lower body exercises all the way on down to you know, upper body machine and then isolation movements. So for example, I generally don't program more than 10 reps on like squat and deadlift, like squat and hinge patterns. And I'm generally not going over a six to eight RPE. Um, and the kind of cool thing is that if we want to talk about how accurate ratings of, of perceived exertion are, and I know we've covered this, I think, in the previous episode, but generally the higher the reps are to get to failure, the more inaccurate your rating is going to be because you're getting more and more metabolic fatigue. Instead of actually gauging, can I keep force production going, you start to be, be confounded by how terrible do I feel, you know? That's why 
15 reps out of a 20 RM on squats is brutal, you know, but you're at a five RPE technically. So the equivalent is absolutely not true on cable rows at five reps out of 10. It's like, yeah, this is really easy, even though both are at a five RPE. So if you want to set yourself up for success, you can get, you know, you're, you're, you're sacrificing a little bit of stimulus for the opportunity to have a much better session overall by doing something like three by six at a seven RPE on squats, instead of doing something like three by 12 or 15 or three by six at a nine RPE. And then you're going to have that leg press go well afterwards, the RDLs go well afterwards, et cetera, et cetera. And you won't be spending most of your rest periods just like gulping for air and, and, and trying to calm your nausea so that you can have a really productive session. Awesome, man. So where, where can people find you? Hey, if you want more information like this, um, there's a lot of places to find me. Probably the best one-stop shop is 3dmusclejourney.com. That is the number three, the letter D, then musclejourney.com. From there, you can find links to uh, the mass research review that we put out every month where we review the research on this stuff. You can find the links to my books where I summarize it all and explain, you know, how do you set up this training with examples. Um, and then, you know, if you don't want to give me your money, which is understandable, I like to keep my money too, then there's absolutely blogs on the 3D Muscle Journey website, as well as the 3D Muscle Journey podcast. We're into like 200 plus episodes where we've discussed all this stuff. Um, and then you can also find uh, my podcast with Omar Isif on all podcast platforms, Iron Culture, where we go through this stuff as well and bring on a lot of really good guests. And if you want to find me linking to this stuff on my Instagram profile, uh, you can follow me at Helms3DMJ. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go give him a follow. Check out his books. Uh, check out the podcast. Iron Culture is pretty dope. They, they always put out tons and tons of uh, really interesting. I think you just did one on hypertrophy periodization or something like that. Not too long ago. Yeah, I think that's yeah, two I, I, I recently listened to that one. That was really good. Um, yeah, so definitely make sure you guys go there um, and, and check it out. That's where... I basically kind of got my start in uh, in lifting, not the Iron Culture podcast, but <laughs> the 3DMJ stuff. I remember when I first became a coach back in like 2012 or something like that. That that was kind of where uh, where I was learning a lot of my stuff as well. So make sure you check that stuff out. Like I said, it's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Eric, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's great to have you here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back.